You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. I'm looking at the gospel. This is our third week on looking at the gospel. We've called it Gospel Revolution. The first week we looked at how are we defined by the gospel. Last week we looked at how are we saved by the gospel. And today I'm going to look at how are we changed by the gospel. But before I do that, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much. I mean, I feel like everything I'm saying this morning has already been spoken out as we've worshipped. We've come and we thank you so much for the fact that the the sinless Saviour, Jesus Christ, died for us, that we can be forgiven, we can be accepted, we can be adopted and chosen and loved. Although we deserved everything but that. I pray that you'll help us to take off these masks and to understand something of your gospel and how we're changed by it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I believe that the gospel is something that we should respond to every single week. Now, some of you might say, I'm not sure if I know what the gospel is. If you're here and you think, I don't know what the gospel is, I've often described it in four simple words. Uh, The Bible describes things fell about. There was the fall. God created and it was all good. It was created and it was perfect. But actually sin got involved and it messed things up. And actually God thought, I'm going to do something about it. So I'm going to pay a price to redeem these people, to bring them back to me. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be restored into this relationship. That would be very simple of the gospel. We have these books called Why Jesus. If you think, I'd like to know a bit more about what is that then you could find that out. And for many, we've responded to the gospel when we've prayed the prayer in this book or a similar one. So I want to ask you, did you turn up to church this morning thinking, I've got to respond today? Now you might be saying to me, Pete, what are you really saying? Have I got to pray that prayer again? Are you saying, oh, oh come on, okay. You know, I, so for me, it was June 1977. I prayed the prayer to say, I'm sorry to Jesus for what I've done wrong. Please, would you forgive me? I would love to live for you. I would say that that was me responding to the gospel. So what does it mean today? Have I got to respond again today? Are you saying that we should all pray that prayer again today? Well, I would like us to say that actually all the time, as believers, as Christians, we should be coming to the gospel. The Apostle Paul, he wrote 13 out of 27 books in the New Testament. Whenever the Christians were asking for a fix in life, how do I get something sorted? There's only one thing that he offered them. It was the gospel. He didn't almost say, well, actually, here's the gospel and now you move on. He said there was just one thing. It's like you get everything all in one thing. I was thinking about this this week. I remember the first mobile phones that come out. This is really date me. You might have seen some real old film. They were like bricks, you know what I'm saying? People would sort of carry around this thing like this. It was like a mobile phone. All you could do on it if you got very, very good reception somewhere is you could phone someone. Whereas now I suddenly think about my phone and I think, well, on my phone I've got the phone, but I've also got the diary. I've also got a sat-nav. I've also got my camera. You know, I remember, it shows my age, doesn't it? But, you know, when you used to get your film out the back of the camera and you used to send it off and then they'd come back and you realise you've got light in there and spoil every single picture. 
Whereas now you think we get, we get everything called in one. Well, I honestly believe that Paul would say the gospel is everything all in one. It's not like, oh, it just does this one thing and now you've got to get something else to do everything else. I quoted Tim Keller. I will quote him again, American pastor, theologian, and apologist who says this, the gospel transforms our hearts and our thinking and changes our approach to everything. And so as we look at this today, you're going to think, okay, Pete, this will change everything. The verse that I looked at two weeks ago, which I want to base again today, for I am not ashamed in Romans 1.16 of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So I would say this, if you're here today and you say, look, I've never believed in that, then I would say, if you believe, then you are instantly saved. But if you say, well, I've believed in that ages ago, Pete, then I would say you go on believing because it will save you from ungodly attitudes and actions. I was reading some management uh, stuff this week. I always find those things interesting. And they were saying, oh, change is not an event, it's a process. Change is not an event, it's a process. Well, I would say with the gospel, change is an event and a process. So I believe that we respond to the gospel in a single moment and things change. But actually, I believe that the gospel is an ongoing process for us. So think about it. In a moment, what happens? The moment you say sorry to Jesus, you have got new life. I mean, that's, that's massive, isn't it? I mean, think about that. I, I honestly believe that I deserve death because of what I've done. But when I pray, I've offered life. But it's also a process because it's not just a life, it's a lifestyle. Oh. So it's not just, oh, I've got new. You see, the moment you pray to become a Christian, then God saves you. You could do nothing to save yourself, but in that moment, you're saved. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He did nothing. He was hung there naked. He had no good thing to recommend him. But Jesus said, you're saved today. But it's a process, the gospel, that the Bible would describe as sanctifying us. It goes on and on and on. I would say that in the moment you pray the prayer to become a Christian, you are released from the penalty of your sin. If you do something wrong, you're going to get punished. That's just the way it goes, isn't it? You know, if you speed in your car, you, you get a ticket. If you park on double yellow lines, you're going to get a ticket. It's just cause and effect. If you do things wrong, you'll get punished. The moment you pray and ask for forgiveness, that's it. But actually, it's a process where you escape not the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. I would like to suggest, stick with me for a moment, that maybe in the room, oh, maybe me, I've ended up being a, a Christian schizophrenic. I don't think the truth, and so I live this sort of abnormal life. I end up thinking, well, I'm saved because of the gospel, but then I've got to behave right. And there's a distinct change there. Paul, when he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you may be sat in church this morning. You may be sat here for a long time. And you might say, to be honest, Pete, I am nail on the head. I just cannot forgive my parents for what they did to me. I just can't forgive my last boss for the way he, he overlooked me for promotion. I just can't forgive my kids and what they've done. What I really need, I need some help with unforgiveness. You might say, look, if I'm totally truthful, Pete, I cannot stop looking at porn. I'm saying this morning, and I just feel guilty because I, I, I can't. You might say, look, to be honest, I'm just up to my eyeballs in debt. Look, you've talked about the gospel for two weeks. Give me some help for my debt. You might be sat here saying, look, my marriage is going wrong. <laughs> I'm in real trouble. Look, I've heard the gospel. I've responded to the gospel. Give me some help with my marriage. We could be sat here on this. What would Paul say? He would say this, I want to know nothing, nothing except Christ Jesus. Wow. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, I need more than just Jesus dying. I need something to change me now. Tertullian, he was an early church father. Some of these guys, they sort of, in the first two or three centuries, they, they said bright things and we've quoted them ever since. He said, Jesus died between two thieves. He says, the gospel has been pulled in two directions ever since. Just as Jesus was crucified between the two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. errors. So on the one hand, I would say this morning, when we think about being changed, we could think it's all to do with legalism. How do I behave right and that could be one thief beside a Jesus. And you think, if I behave right, I'm going to be saved. If I put more money in the bag, I'm going to be saved. If I could sing and play, I'm going to be saved. If I could preach, if I could behave, I could be saved. On the other side of Jesus is what I would call license. Oh, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you fancy. Jesus loves you anyway. He loves you. Oh, look, I know you're absolutely in debt. I know that you're not honouring your wife. I know that you're doing all this. He loves you. Oh, he loves you. It doesn't matter. Don't do anything. He loves you. And so Jesus has got this gospel that's almost between these two extremes. Now, actually, how do we learn something of what the gospel changes us? Is it about how we behave, or does it not matter how we behave? I believe that the key is not your behavior, it is your identity. And this is what the gospel changes about us. The gospel changes your identity. How you think about yourself determines how you act. You think about that. You know, let, let's be frank. If you think you're insignificant, you might sort of walk around kicking your feet like this. Oh, don't worry about me. I couldn't do anything. Oh, I'm no good. Or if you think you're confident, you behave like that. And I think actually the gospel wants to get right into our thinking. You see, when you are married to Jesus, that's what it means to become a believer, you get a brand new identity up front. Martin Luther, great reformer 500 years ago, talked about the great exchange. Suddenly you're changed. It's a moment. In fact, Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin that's Jesus, to be sin for us. 
He took all our sin. He didn't do wrong. He took us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Your identity is completely changed. I, I, I know I struggle with uh, creativity and I keep trying to get a little bit more creative. Your identity is a pig. Just stick with me for this one moment. And I know some animal lovers are going to tell, you know, crucify me for saying this. We think of pigs as smelly, dirty animals, don't we? They're not. I know they're clean, actually. But all they do is they wallow in mud. They have got the reputation of wallowing in mud, of not going very far, of not achieving very much. And many of us can think, oh, we had that kind of mask on. But actually, we, we became a Christian. So what happened... You tell her you to be a primary school teacher. We take on the mask of an eagle. Everybody knows that the eagle is one of the most beautiful, graceful creatures there are. The eagle looks with five colors in their eyes, not the three that we do. The eagle can spot a rabbit from two miles away because they've got a million light sensors in their eyes. And so actually, we think, becoming a Christian, I've taken one mask off, and I've put another mask on. We think, I've changed. But I thought it's fascinating. And Yvette even brought this word that I was so listening to. She said, your, what? your DNA has changed. You have not changed from a pig mask to an eagle mask. You've changed inside. And some of us don't realize that. Forget all of this. Think about Christmas. I love Christmas. I can't wait already. Some of us feel like we're a bit like a Christmas tree that's all dried and cracked, you know, the real ones, not the plastic ones, because they don't, you know. And it's almost like, how do we decorate them up? We just stick a few lights on and try and pretend it's bright. And we can think like that as a Christian. You think, inside, I'm still this dead old tree, but it's almost, oh, hopefully becoming a Christian, I've got a few bright lights on me. Whereas actually, what the gospel does is it changes you on the inside. Listen to this carefully. You are no longer a sinner who sometimes behaves righteous. You are now a righteous one who sometimes behaves sinfully. Hey, that, that, that's changed my DNA. I just thought I had to behave something. No, no, it's not I've changed my mask, my whole inside. I don't know about you, think about this. Sometimes, have you ever you know, got a really nice apple and you look beautiful on the outside and you bite it and inside you think, oh, it's a bit rotten. Sometimes I think we feel like that as Christians. We try and polish up the outside. Actually, something happens and you sort of see inside and you think, golly, I'm a bit rotten. I don't really like that. What I would tend to say is, I'm, trying to, I'm not a great fruit and veg man or whatever, but I found you can get these apples that look skank on the outside, but actually when you cut them out, they're beautiful on the inside. So I think when we do things wrong, that is probably what's true of us. It's not that we're all rotten on the inside. We've been changed by the gospel. Paul, I told you he wrote loads of the New Testament, in Romans 6, verse 11 to 12, says this, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires the word count was an accounting term it's which column do you put this in he says actually you've got to put it in the column where you count yourself dead to sin it's happened 
What Paul is saying is this. If you understand your identity, you understand your behavior. Can I just say, this is not positive thinking. And the danger is we think, oh, Peter, are you just trying to encourage me to think positively? No, we're saying this. Your whole being, your DNA has changed. Again, I'm quoting Paul a lot today. I mean, this is a massive New Testament theme, the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone... If anyone is in Christ Jesus, the new creation has come. It didn't say the new mask. It said the new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. Some of you, if you're really honest, you think, I'm still a pig, but somebody's put some wings on the back of me and I'm trying to fly. That's how I feel about my Christian life. It's still me and I'm no real good, but oh, I know that I'm in Christ and I should fly. No, actually, what the Bible says is that's gone completely. DNA's changed. You are now an eagle. You are now meant to fly. Total change. C.S. Lewis, who was a British novelist, poet and academic, he says, no matter how hard a grass field tries, it cannot produce wheat. The only way to get wheat is to plough it up and to re-sow it with wheat. In Jesus, you've basically been re-sown. That's what, that's what the gospel has done. It has changed you completely. And you think, oh, God, and I kept trying to think. You see, with God, it's always you are accepted first and you are obey second. Listen to that again. With God, you are accepted first and obey second. But we tend to reverse the order. Religion works like this. If I obey God, he might accept me. That's what religion says. Religion says, if I obey God, if I do the things that you know, I'm meant to do, if I fast, if I pray, if I give, or if I serve, if I do it, then maybe he'll accept me. Whereas actually the gospel says, I'm loved, I'm accepted, therefore I want to obey. That is just totally different, isn't it? So it changes us completely. Think about it. This is true the whole way through the Bible, and so often we miss it. If you think back to the Old Testament, and you know the story that the Israelites, though in Egypt, they've been there 400 years. God basically says, look, I love you, you're mine, I'm going to bring you out. And it's a picture we often say of how God treats people. They were slaves and he set them free. You know, it's almost like there they were in bondage and he brings them across the River Jordan. That's why we baptize all this picture, isn't it? Freedom and you're going. That, that's what he was saying. The old is gone, I've washed away the past. In fact, the enemy tried to get hold of him from the past and he, he pushed back the Egyptians. I mean, that's the picture, isn't it? When do they get the Ten Commandments? Oh, it was later. You see, they didn't obey to get loved by God. They were loved by God, and then God said, this is how you obey. And that's the picture of the Bible. It's, it's all the way through the Bible. Jesus is brought a prostitute. Now, you know... You don't have to be too imaginative to think this. She's been caught doing wrong. I mean, it's a horrendous sin. You can read about it in John, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. She's brought before Jesus, and basically he says, um, uh, 
So who here condemns you? No one, sir, she said in John 8, 11. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He accepted, and then he looked for her to obey. He didn't say to her, oh, that's, that's shocking. I can't believe that you come to me before this. You, a prostitute, dressed like that, caught doing whatever. You, you've got you to up your act. Don't you realize who I am? I'm the son of God. Jesus didn't do that. He said, look, I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Obey because you love. That's how it changes us. Paul, I told you Paul would get in loads today. I wish I had a picture of Paul up there. I haven't. We don't know what he looks like. Doesn't really matter. We're trying to listen to what he's got to say. Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Why was he, why was he saying this? The church in Corinth was known, sadly, for sexual immorality. There was a massive temple there, and, and basically as part of the pagan worship, there was a lot of sexual practices that went on. And could you believe it? That even came into the church. And so Paul was writing to the church and saying, you guys, I mean, people were sleeping with their mother-in-laws and the daughters. And he said, your sexual sin in here is worse than out there. But actually, how did he address it? He said, don't you understand who you are? He didn't come in with this book of rules. Right, rule number one. (laughs) Don't kiss your mother-in-law on the lips. You know, I I mean, some of us might have loved it if Paul had written like that. You know what I'm saying? No, no, actually he came in and said, don't you understand who you are? You are temples of the Holy Spirit. Understand your identity, then you'll know how to behave. Religion says, this is how you behave, and then hopefully you'll be acceptable to God. So the gospel has changed it all. It's a bit like, if you're a parent, I dare you, when your kids are teenagers, and they want to go out for the evening, you think, oh golly, should this be good? I dare you to say this to them. You're my son, I trust you, now go and have a great time. Oh, that's a challenge, isn't it? But I almost think that's how God would say to us. The identity is this, you're my son, I trust you, now you can have a great time. You don't put a load of rules on there, because actually what you're saying is, I love you, this is your identity. Now, you, you see what I'm saying? It's almost like, how do we do this? I believe that the gospel totally challenges our identity. Every story you tell has got a limitation, and the danger is that sort of thing you try and say, and hopefully it helps you understand it. I read this week of a little boy that had made a sailing boat, and he'd taken his boat out. You know, he'd he'd spent ages building it and painting it and decorating it. He takes it all down, and the first time he takes it out, it gets washed out to sea. He's gutted, absolutely distraught. But one week later... He sees it in the second-hand shop. Obviously, it's, 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 and he goes into the shopkeeper and says, that boat that you're trying to sell, you must have found that in the sea, it's mine. Well, the shopkeeper doesn't believe him. So, I'm sorry, mate, if you want it, you've got to buy it. So he goes home to his dad and says, look, I really want to buy this boat back. It's mine, I built it. And so, basically, he does odd jobs and all this for a whole month, collects up the money, goes to the shopkeeper and buys it. And he almost, you could hear this boy whispering to this boat, you're mine for the second time. I made you and now I've brought you. That's how much I love you. 
I guess that's a little bit how God feels about us. That's the gospel. That's how it comes. I made you. I love you. I paid for you. You're mine. The gospel should change our identity. The gospel also changes our heart. Proverbs, which is a book of the Old Testament, which I would say is great principles for living life. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. There's an understanding that it's almost out of the heart. It's who you are. The gospel changes your heart. You see, the, the challenge so often is the heart pursues happiness. In the old ways, we describe that as a wayward heart. The pursuit of happiness. You think what makes you happy is what you do. And that's true for most of us, isn't it? Let's be really honest. You think, am I going to eat this bit of cake? Ah, oh, it'll just make me happy. I'm going to eat it. Blow the calories. Whatever makes you happy. I mean, we, we can be so often be determined by that, can't we? St. Augustine, he was one of these early Christian theologians. He's from the 5th century. He spent years doing all this kind of stuff, wild living, sleeping around, drinking, partying, and then he came to know God. He said, at the end of all those years of rebellion, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of, rid of sorry, such fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are the true sovereign joy. And actually what he said is, oh God, in my heart I've been after all this, but actually when I've got you in me, it changes everything. I would almost say, and it's a very simple equation, but I try and keep things as simple as I can, Gospel in, sin out. Gospel in, sin out. Now, so often I think we can be round the other way, you know what I'm saying? And we try and think, oh, if I could get my sin out, I could get the gospel in. C.S. Lewis, I quoted him earlier, he says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He said, look, there's all this available to you. The heart resists rules but receives the gospel. You see, if we tell the heart what we should do without compelling why, it doesn't work. But actually, if we understand something of the gospel, it changes the way our heart feels. Let, let, let's be frank. Let, let's just go back right to the money thing. We've taken the offering. You think about money. Look, if you're a visitor, great having you here. And if you come every week, I'm challenging you. Do we have stingy hearts or generous hearts? Does when the pot come around, we suddenly feel like, oh, God, I feel embarrassed. I've not put anything in for a couple of weeks. Or do we think, what a privilege to give. You see, Paul, writing to the church, says this in 2 Corinthians 8. You, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Why are we generous? Why do we give money to the Syrian refugee crisis? Well, why would we want to open up our homes and invite people round? Why would we want to buy coffees when we're out? 
Because Jesus, the gospel is such that it's changed our hearts. Yeah. I've realized how generous he is to me. Yeah. It's not, oh, well, I'm a Christian, I should. It's almost like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed with my identity and how he has loved me. I think that's true of unforgiveness, isn't it? Jesus himself tells the parable, doesn't he? Of the, there's a guy and basically owes the king a great debt, millions of pounds. He goes to the king and the king says, well, I'll throw you into prison. And he begs himself and says, oh, king, please, I will pay you back. The king says, don't worry about it. I'll, forget you every, I'll forgive you everything. Wow. And then he goes down the road. Jesus tells the story, doesn't he? He meets somebody, he owes him a fiver. He says, you owe me money. But please forgive me. Give me some time, I will pay. No, if you don't pay me back, I'll throw you in the prison. You see, because his identity hadn't changed, he didn't flow out in generousness, generosity. I think, ah, oh, the gospel should change us right on the heart. Husbands, how do we behave to our wives? Well, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus 5. Ephesians 5, he's writing to them. Ephesians 5, 25. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Paul doesn't say, look, the, the way to have a great marriage is this. Get up in the morning and sing to her. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't actually say, get up in the morning and make her coffee. Amen. No, no, he doesn't say that. <laughs> what he actually says is, what's in your heart? If you realize how Christ loves you, then you will love your wife that way. If not, you'll always keep score. Oh, it's your turn. He's saying, come on, guys. You've got to love your wife like that. You say, how do I get my marriage better? Well, the gospel gives you the answer. And you're thinking, oh, give me some tools, Pete. Is it a date night? I'm not trying to give you tools. I'm trying to say your whole heart will be changed because Jesus has changed it here. The heart worships what it believes will satisfy it the most. This, I believe, is idolatry of the heart. Psychologists agree our deepest needs include a sense of identity, purpose, and significance. That's why we chase money, relationships, and achievement. The gospel helps us. Harold Abrams, you probably have never heard of him. He was one of the runners in Chariots of Fire. He was a 100-meter sprinter. He was recorded as saying this, I have only 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Usain Bolt would say, I've only got nine seconds and whatever it is to justify my existence. You see, we try and justify ourselves by what we're doing rather than actually what's going on in the heart. Paul again, I told you, Paul, Paul, Paul today. Romans 1.25, they exchanged, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So I want to make this really, really practical and I'm going to finish literally in the next five minutes. I believe that there are three layers that the gospel needs to challenge us on. And so I'm just thinking, how are we changed by it? Well, I think if we go to this, so often we go at the top layer, which tends to be the Bible would describe it as sin. That's things that we do that are less than perfect. Now, I would say, which probably seems a funny thing, I don't know, there's an idol there. Why do we do that? Well, I would say actually the root of it is often disbelief in the actual gospel. So let me give you a couple of examples, and then you can think, okay, I can see how the gospel is going to change me. 
Suppose you're afraid of death. You're fearful of death. Now, I might have said, right, that's the top. That's almost like a sin. Why are you afraid of death? Well, I think your idol would be this, that you just value this world. What could I do? I want to cram in as many experiences as I can in this world. It's almost like this world is all there is to offer. What I can see, taste, smell, touch, that is my idol. So what's your disbelief? Well, your disbelief would be this. That actually heaven is better than earth, which is what the gospel says. Your disbelief is this, that the Father in heaven cannot comfort those you've left behind. And so ultimately, you have a disbelief in the gospel, which affects the way you behave. Now, some of you might say, I don't fear death. Okay, let me get a little bit more personal. Do you always need to be in a relationship? If you're single, are you thinking, that I'm just desperate, I'm desperate to be in this relationship? I'm not saying marriage is wrong, but it's almost like that could become your sin. So therefore, the idol is this, I really need affection. So your disbelief in the gospel is this, Jesus is enough for me. And you think, well, Jesus isn't enough for me. That's why I've always got to have somebody else who tells me I'm great. Now, please, I'm not against these things. I'm just trying to challenge how does the gospel change us in everything? Let, let's think about another one. Suppose you're, you're totally wrapped up in your appearance, overly conscious about your appearance. Beauty, which is a good thing, has become your ultimate thing, your idol. So your disbelief is this. Actually, I need something to save me. It's going to be what I look like. And so you think the gospel will challenge you because you, you don't believe the gospel. It ends up bearing bad fruit in your life. Perfectionism. Oh, how many of us can get caught up? In, and I would say, well, look, that would be the sin of perfectionism. What's the idol? You're always striving to achieve standards, to look good externally, to get internal peace. And why is that a disbelief? Because the gospel says God accepts you as you are. But if you don't believe that, you end up trying to become a perfectionist. Maybe for some. And you might say, oh, it's not me, it's my, it's my work. But maybe actually it is. You're a workaholic. So that's basically the thing at the top. And so what you, it's almost like your idol is more than Jesus, I need success or I need money or I need approval. And so your disbelief is this. That Jesus is perfect and has accomplished it all for you. So you, you end up getting into this, I've just got to become this workaholic. I've got to achieve, I've got to prove myself. Whereas actually Jesus says, I've done it for you. I didn't even know whether to go to the last one. And it's difficult because the more you think about it, this can be quite challenging. Gluttony. Gluttony. Well, I would say the Bible describes gluttony as a sin. So what's the idol? The idol would be our comfort and pleasure. So what I really value is my comfort and my pleasure. So if I've done really well, what do I do? I celebrate with a lovely meal. Or if I have things have gone really badly, how do I comfort myself with a lovely meal? And so actually, the disbelief is this, that Jesus completely satisfies me. And so what you're suddenly saying is, if I genuinely believe the whole of the gospel, it would completely change everything. But so often I don't. And then I just tinker around with a mask. You think, I think, well, actually, I'm a pig, but I'm trying to pretend I'm an eagle. No, no, my DNA has changed. So what does it mean? Well, it will change on everything. The gospel changes how I look at everything every day. 
My, my concern is I can just pretend it's something that maybe I look through on a Sunday. It changes who I am. It changes my identity. It changes my heart. And therefore, it will change everything. So it is a moment, but it's also a process. And for some of us, the danger is we, we've, we've looked at the moment and then we forget this is an ongoing process that I'm working through. So therefore, this morning, this has got to apply to all of us, hasn't it? So you might be saying, say, well, I don't believe the gospel. Well, then this is your opportunity. Or you might be saying, say, well, I do believe the gospel. So then I'm going to challenge you and say, okay, what's your sin? And what is your idol? And why is that? Where's the disbelief in the gospel for you? And you can say, oh, golly, I'm a good apple on the inside, but I've just got a few crabby skins at the moment. I just need to get that sorted. And I would love us in the, in the whole process of breaking bread together to think, oh, I'm going to respond to this right now. So I'll hand back to these guys.